founded a private school as a haven for whites, expressly barring all black students. A few liberal members left the church in protest when the kindergarten turned down the daughter of a black Bible professor. But most of us approved of the decision. A year later, the church board rejected a Carver Bible Institute student for membership, and in parentheses he has, his name was Tony Evans. The Tony Evans. Now there is no way that Cornelius belongs in the same sentence with Peter, any more than they belonged in the same sentence, or in the same house, or even in the same church. Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter is a Jew. They live on opposite sides of the moral and cultural divide. But in Acts chapter 10, which we are going to consider this morning, the power of God through the Holy Spirit uses a prayer that these two men are praying 65 miles apart from each other to do something extraordinary in them and in the church. So Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, but we will consider some of the surrounding context as well. The next day, Luke tells us, as they were on their journey, that would be Luke and some of the other brothers from the church, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house stop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once again. Now, first of all, as we look at this passage, what we see, I think, emerging from it is that prayer is indispensable in the life of the church. Prayer is indispensable in the life of the church. Now, why does Luke take so much pains in almost every chapter of uh, the book of Acts that we've read so far to highlight the importance of prayer not only in the lives of individual apostles like Peter and others, Stephen and, and, and Paul, but in the life of the church as a whole. Why does he do that? So in chapter 1, he mentions that 120 believers had gathered together in one place in the upper room to pray. In chapter 2, he speaks of the church continuing daily in prayer. In chapter 3, he documents that Peter and John were going up to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for their daily, daily prayer meeting. In chapter 4, he tells us that after the apostles had prayed, the place in which they had met shook as if by an earthquake. In chapter 5, he tells us of the tragic circumstances that happened 
when we fail to be faithful in prayer, documenting, of course, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter 6, he quotes the apostles as saying, we will devote ourselves continually to prayer. In chapter 7, he mentions that even while Stephen was being stoned, in his very final moments on the earth, he said, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. Don't hold it against them. In chapter 8, he points out that when the apostles had prayed and laid their hands on the new believers, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 9, he mentions that the apostle Paul, after being struck by this light um, from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun, after he was struck and fell from his horse, he spent three days neither eating nor drinking, but praying and seeking for the next step, seeking those things from God. And then in the opening verses of chapter 10, which we are considering this morning, we're told that a Gentile, a man who does not yet know God, knows about him, he prays continuously. And so by now we, we get the point. Prayer is the most important spiritual activity that the church can engage in. Seeking God's face in order to plumb the depths of his mercy, his grace, his mind, his heart, and his power. Seeking God's face together, invoking God's presence and power upon the church, interceding for breakthroughs in COVID-19 or the racial tensions that have caused our nation to be so divided, yearning for healing in our nation, in our country, as it grapples with violence and so many things, pleading with God to direct us as an electorate so that we might choose his man to lead us forward uh, after the elections of this year. So praying. There is a case for the church praying. Now, Cornelius, as we mentioned before, he's a Gentile. He's not even a follower of Christ yet, but he fears God, and his heart is being drawn to God in continuous prayer. And so at 3 o'clock one afternoon, he's praying, and God sends him a vision. And in that vision, he sees an angel, and immediately he becomes afraid. He's horrified. The angel says to him, Cornelius, God has sent me to you to let you know that your prayers have ascended to me as a memorial before me. Send men to Joppa to look for Simon. He lives, he's staying in the home of another man named Simon who lives by the sea. Go and look for him. He will tell you what to do. Now, there are two things, I believe, that are very important from Cornelius' prayer two lessons that they teach us. First of all, the first lesson they teach us is this. God affirms, God affirms our prayers. Cornelius, the angel says, your prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. Now what can be more affirming than to be told that your prayers are being heard in heaven? What can be more affirming and refreshing than that? that the cries of your heart, that the groanings of your soul, that the tears on your cheeks, sometimes in the middle of the night as it 
wets your pillow, as you seek answers from God, as you seek help, wisdom, deliverance, healing, some miracle, that all of this is being heard by a gracious and benevolent God. There's nothing more reassuring than that. When we pray, it should be enough for us to know that God hears us. Even if God gives us no guarantees that he will answer in the time frame and in the way that we expect him to. Just to know that God hears us should be affirming. Secondly, God answers our prayers. And so God gives Cornelius some clear instructions on what he is to do. He says to him, now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now this is the most frustrating part of prayer. I'm sure you'd agree with me, the answer. The answer. Not every prayer elicits from God the same kind of clarity about what to do that Cornelius receives here from God. Many of our prayers feel like they are falling on deaf ears. Many of our prayers seem like they are bouncing off the wall back to hit us in the face. Many of our prayers feel like they are just missing a moving target, a target that keeps moving all of the time. And so things and people and circumstances that we've been praying for for days and weeks and months and years, they have not changed. Am I the only person experiencing that? No. That is the frustrating thing about prayer. That you pray and pray and pray and pray, and often it does not seem as though God has heard or that God is doing anything about it. So what do we do then? Do we stop praying or do we continue praying? I believe that this is where many of us lose the battle, right here, because we have concluded that because we have not seen an answer from God, that means he has not heard us, and so we stop. But nothing could be further from the truth. Here's the truth. We can control our prayers, but not the answers. We have control over our praying, but we have no control whatsoever over the answers. The prerogative to pray is ours. The prerogative to answer is God's. This is what E.M. Bounds says. He wrote a lot about prayer, and I quote him. Talking to men for God is a great thing. But talking to God for men is greater still. He will, never talk, he will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. Play on words, but very significant. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. The answer to your prayer may be in someone else's prayer. And so 65 miles away, Peter is making his way at noon up to the rooftop of his house to pray. I wonder who told Peter that he should be praying at midday. I thought, I thought midday was the time when we had lunch. You know, that's when I do my lunch. I love to eat at midday. But he is going up on the top of his house at noon to pray. And as he's praying, he loses track of time until he realizes that he's hungry. Here's the question. When last... Have you 
become so caught up in your prayer that you lose track of time or your next appointment. Has that ever happened to you? That you are so engrossed in seeking after God's heart and God's mind and God's ways that you just lose track of time and what you have to do next. Until he becomes hungry. He becomes so hungry that as he's waiting on his lunch to be prepared, he falls into a trance. Sometimes that happens. This is, a, this is definitely a God thing, however. God allows him to go into this trance. And in this trance, God, or in this vision, he, he sees a great sheet that was let down from heaven. And in this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And God gives him the command, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Eat to your heart's desire. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I would have had me some good old venison. <laughs> or some good old pulled pork. I've, I've had some of your pulled pork in this place, and it's good. I would have had some of that. But not Peter. Peter says, no, no Lord, I'm not going to touch that stuff. I, I won't have any of that stuff, because my Jewish pride has never allowed me to touch anything unclean, much less to eat anything unclean. But the angel answers back, Peter, what God has cleansed, do not call common or unclean. Now we're told, Luke tells us, that this happens three times. Peter saying the same thing each time, and God giving him the same response each time. What's the point here? The answer to Cornelius' prayer, 65 miles apart, is in Peter's prayer. The answer to Cornelius' prayer, Cornelius prayer, as he's 65 miles away in Caesarea, is in Peter's prayer. It is as Peter is praying that he receives major revelation from God that has implication not only for him, but for Cornelius and for all people. God says to Peter, do not call unclean what God has made clean. And you do realize that God's answer has nothing to do with food and everything to do with people. Don't call common or unclean anyone that God has called clean. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Third point. Prayer changes our view of people we consider to be different. And so in, still in chapter 10, reading the story from verses 17 through 23, we read thus. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them 
to be his guests. Now, have you ever tried to make sense of something that God was showing you that did not quite make sense to you at the time? So Peter is inwardly perplexed. He's, he's wondering, what in the world is going on here? What is God trying to say to me? What, what is the meaning behind all of this vision? And at that very moment, there's a knock on the door, and Cornelius' his three servants are calling for Peter and asking for him. Now you have to admire how God allows uh, these two stories to merge into his larger story, how he allows all of the details to fit together. Detail after detail. What we see here is that God is working in Cornelius' heart at the same time that he's working in Peter's heart, 65 miles apart from each other, and they are bounded together by the prayer that they are praying. God is revealing to Cornelius that the love of God is so wide that nobody is ever excluded from it. And God is revealing to Peter that he must never again consider anyone unclean whom God has made clean. I want us to hear these two truths and to allow them to really sink deep within our psyche. That God loves everybody. Everybody. Never consider anyone to be unclean. Now let's look at what Peter, the ungodly, I'm sorry, the godly circumcised Jew does after these three uncircumcised Gentiles explain the nature of their business. Peter does the unthinkable. He invites them into his house. That, that was a no-no back in that day. Prayer has begun to change Peter's worldview so that he now views these men differently. Prayer is changing his worldview. Fourthly, prayer changes our heart toward people who are different. Verses 24 through 25. The next day he rose, Peter did, and went with these three men back to Caesarea, to, the, uh, to Cornelius' house, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without hesitation. Now, how, how remarkable is it that Peter and some of his Jewish brothers are now on a 65-mile trip in the company of three Gentile men who are uncircumcised to journey and travel into Gentile territory, the nation of the pagans. How remarkable is it that Cornelius, who is 65 miles away in Caesarea, is expecting them, 
And not only is he expecting them, but he has gathered all of his family, all of his relatives into his house to hear what Peter will say to them when he gets there. And how remarkable is it that Peter enters this Gentile's house, just as he had allowed these three Gentiles to enter his house. And how remarkable is what he says to Cornelius and his family as he enters the house. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or, with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So first of all, what Peter does is that he acknowledges that there are differences between Jews and Gentiles. And yes, there are differences, and we should acknowledge those differences between different peoples. But what Peter also does is that he acknowledges how God has changed his heart through what he has just experienced in a vision. This is what he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, did you notice the change in language here? Did you notice the change in language? Now Peter realizes that this vision was not just about animals, reptiles, and birds, but about people. Peter initially had heard God say that you should not call anything common or unclean. Now he says in this passage, don't call any person common or unclean. So you can see that there is a change from what he originally intended. That's why he can now say, God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. And notice here that what prayer does is that it frees up the Holy Spirit to work across miles and across cultures, connecting people who are different and changing their minds and hearts towards people who are different. This is the bottom line of our message this morning. Through prayer, we must tap into God's power to change us and to change the world. Let me say that again. Through prayer, we must tap into God's power to change us, to change our hearts, to change our perspectives, to change our worldview, and also to change the world. There are two application points, just two, that I think are very significant. The first of which is this. Your first prayer, the first prayer that you must pray is one of repentance. Now notice that Cornelius was a praying man. He prayed all the time. He prayed consistently. But just because you pray to God doesn't mean that you are at one with God. Cornelius prayed constantly, but it was his prayer of repentance that really mattered. Prayer of repentance. Such a prayer acknowledges your sorrow over your sin. But it also acknowledges your need for a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of behavior. And only God can bring about this change, and so we look to him to ask that that change be wrought in us. And so repentance is turning to God and turning away from your sin. So I want to say to you this morning, if you're 
here this morning or if you're following with me online, if you've never prayed the prayer of repentance, this is the perfect time for that. To turn to God and to ask for his forgiveness, for his mercy, for his cleansing, for his deliverance from sin. Notice this, that the prayer of repentance is always heard and it is always granted. There's not a single time that you pray the prayer of repentance in earnestness that God does not hear it and that God does not grant it. That's the first prayer that you must pray. If you sense this morning, whether here or online, that that is a prayer you need to pray. Your prayer is to simply say, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me, for I have sinned. Cleanse me. Become my Savior. Become my Lord. Here is a second application point. Having prayed first the prayer of repentance, the next prayer you must pray is one of repentance. I'm not being redundant here. That's not a misprint. That is a real print. Because you see, people of every ethnicity, of every ethnicity, need God to change their hearts toward people who are different. No one ethnicity is more guilty of that than any other. We all need God to change our hearts toward people who are different. And so that is as true for the church as it is for our nation. We live in a nation that is being torn apart by strife, with deeply held prejudices on both sides of the cultural divide. For some, the flag, the anthem, and national monuments are cause for national pride, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is to be celebrated. For others, these symbols mean something different. That, too, has to be respected. To some, the unrest in Kenosha and Portland and Chicago and the major cities represent a lawlessness that needs to be forcefully stopped. To others, they are simply expressing their civil, civic right to protest. These two viewpoints must be respected as well. To some, the Republican Party is the only party worthy of their vote because of its uh, opposition to abortion, which is very much in line with their values. That is to be respected. For others, the Democratic Party will always get the vote because its record on social justice issues is more in line with their values, even if abortion is not. And so the church finds itself caught in the middle of these tensions. But the church has not always gotten it right either, has it? Fact of the matter is that the church has often been wrong on the issues. And the only way to make a wrong thing right is through the prayer of repentance. And so both the church and the nation need to pray the prayer of repentance. I believe that if, if Jesus were in the pulpit this morning, and if he had a national audience, would he call out the church for too often being silent when our voices should have been the first to be heard? Would he call out the nation because we have also not followed his ways? 
But as we look specifically at the church, would he chastise us for being guilty of putting our politics above our faith? Would he reprimand us for not putting our, I'm sorry, for often putting our race above our faith? Would he accuse us of too often allowing our faith to become separate from our works? So when the church is guilty, the church has no other option but to fall on its face and to repent. If Jesus had a national audience, would he call out our nation for continuing to elevate our politics above our respect for all life? Would he chastise us for not having yet learned how to live together as one people under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all? Would he rebuke us for continuing to put blind faith in politician after politician after politician rather than in the only savior who can get, out, get us out of this mess that we are in as a nation? And would he say that the time was right in America for national repentance and that it was time that the church led the way by example as well as by precept? I believe it's time for repentance in America. I believe it's time for repentance in the church. I believe it's, the time is right for repentance in our own individual lives for whatever the Holy Spirit convicts us of in this message. However we feel about any of that, let us all remember that we are one church, one people, who love God and who loves us as a result. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We recognize, God, that you've called us and you've called the church to lead in these very, very challenging and difficult times. God, we do not want to drop the ball as it comes to leadership. God, sometimes we look to the nation, we look to politicians for leadership, and really, people are looking to the church for moral leadership. We ask you to help us, God, not to drop the ball where that is concerned, but to, to be people who are faithful to you, people who allow our faith to be more important to us than our politics. We ask you, God, that you would so place within our hearts the love, your love for all people, that, Lord, regardless of what the media says, regardless of what the politicians say, we will, in fact, live out our faith in obedience to what you say. That we should not call any person that you've made clean, unclean. No one is untouchable. No one is exempt from the grace of God and from the forgiveness of God. We ask you, God, to teach us how to love one another, Teach us, God, how to live with one another. Lord, there is so much that needs to be overcome in this area, so much prejudice that needs to be overcome, so much misunderstanding that needs to be overcome. Give us the grace, God, to be able to 
be the big person in the room and to stand up and to be counted for you and to do what it is that you're calling us to do in this regard. Thank you for teaching us these lessons through Cornelius and Peter, the prayer that they were praying. May we, too, be caught up in similar prayers that reveal your answers to us. God, we thank you that you're faithful. I pray, God, that if there's one person today who prayed the prayer of repentance to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, that you will indeed give them the assurance that that <coughs> prayer has been heard and has been answered and that they are forgiven. We thank you that you're faithful. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.